This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. During the 1960s and 1970s, a serial murderer terrorizes secluded areas near San Francisco, California. The media was instantly captivated, and the relationship between killer and media and law enforcement had never been seen before. He began sending taunting messages to both police and newspapers after his first murder. He infamously sent a cipher that said, This is the Zodiac speaking. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise podcast, and tonight we bring you an interview with one of the case breakers who may have actually deciphered the identity of the Zodiac Killer. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels, Georgia. No crazy step opening tonight because uh, stereo can't go into mono or mono can't go into stereo or whatever. We have secured an interview with Miss Jennifer Bucholtz who is one of the Case Breaker team members who may have cracked the identity of the Zodiac Killer. Uh, before we bring her on, Jennifer Bucholtz is a former U.S. Army counterintelligence agent and a decorated veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice, Master of Arts in Criminal Justice, and Master of Science in Forensic Sciences. Jennifer is currently a professor of forensics and criminal justice at American Military University, as well as an advisor for the university's cold case team. Additionally, she is an instructor for the Department of State's Office of Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program and a licensed private investigator in the state of Colorado. She has an extensive background in, in investigative reporting and forensic analysis. Bucholtz has also worked for the Arizona Department of Corrections and office of the Chief Medical Examiner in New York City. We now bring you the interview with Jennifer Bucholtz, Rob from Cigar Store Idiots, and the lovable Coach. Thank you and enjoy. All right, so today we have Miss Jennifer Bucholtz from uh, the Case Breakers with us, and uh, she found herself in an extraordinary position and uh, I'll let her explain how this all came about. But um, the, the cool thing is, I mean, you're like every true crime junkie's dream now. I mean, you cracked the biggest unsolved case there is. Well, we hope we did. We're, we're working on confirmation for that. And I can explain what we're doing to, to confirm or refute our well, conclusion. Well, you closer to solving it than we have. <laughs> Yeah. So how did you find yourself working with the case breakers and, or actually how did you find yourself wrapped up in this case? Well, it, it goes back a couple of years to a case that I'm pretty sure you guys are familiar with because you did a, a recording on it, but the unsolved murder of Rebecca Gould out of Melbourne, Arkansas. And um, 
that one, I mean, I kind of fell into that one too, but I, I was writing about, I wrote a long series of articles on Rebecca's case. And one of them had to do with using behavioral profiling or behavioral analysis in homicide investigation. And I had mentioned Zodiac in my article because he's fairly unique in that he sent a bunch of taunting letters to police. So that was, you know, part of his, um, more of his signature aspect, I would say, not necessarily MO, but anyway, so a newscaster by the name of Dale Julin emailed me after I wrote that article, after I published it. And he, you know, wrote me this long email explaining how he'd done about seven years of work on the Zodiac case. And he thought he'd figured out who the perpetrator was. And he'd actually written up a, a manuscript for a book and he wanted me to read it and provide my honest feedback. And I mean, naturally I was skeptical. And let me just say, I'm not a Zodiac buff by any means. Like, I mean, obviously I know the case fairly well now but I still can't recite every single date and location and victim. But a few years ago, I mean, I had read a couple books on it, seen the movie. That's that was about the extent of my knowledge. So, and and I kind of thought like, oh, I thought they already identified the guy, you know. <laughs> so then I did some research and I'm like, oh no, actually they haven't. So, anyways, Dale, I said, yeah, send me your manuscript. Um, when I have time, I'll I'll take a look at it. It took me a few weeks to get to it, but when I started reading it, it was compelling, and I ended up reading it pretty much all in one sitting. And uh, we'll, we'll get into more detail, I'm sure, but. By the end of his manuscript, I mean, I was like, this has to be it. I mean, this has to be the guy. This, everything is falling in place here. Everything makes sense. And Dale took such a unique approach to the case that nobody else had ever taken. That was another reason why I was like, oh, what he did actually makes total, complete sense to me. So, you know, we got on the phone for a while and I was like, well, what's your, what do you, you know, what's your end goal, I guess? And he's like, well, you know, I've tried to get meetings with law enforcement in California and the FBI. And of course, nobody will listen to me or, or look at my findings. And he was like, I was hoping since you have, you know, your former military and you, you've worked with other like FBI agents and you teach now at American Military University in forensics, like maybe you'd have some connections that could help me out. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, uh, let me think this through and think about who I can contact, you know, and it, it took a while, but Eventually, I got in touch or was put in touch with a guy named Eric Kleinsmith, who worked at AMU in a different department than me, but he's also former Army counterintelligence like me. We connected, and then he ended up connecting me with Tom Colbert, and he's the guy that heads up the case breakers and started that nonprofit about 10 years ago. And I mean, I had never even heard of the case breakers before all of this, but eventually I got on the phone with Tom and I you know, I kind of gave their spiel for him. I said, would you be willing to look at this manuscript? Because I think there's a lot of validity to it. And he said, yeah, sure. You know, same thing as me. He's like, send it my way. I'll get to it. Well, he read it that weekend and called me back. He's like, oh my gosh, I think Dale got it. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, it's nice to hear the validation, you know, because that's how I feel too. Right. And that's how this ball got rolling. <laughs> so with not being, you know, kind of, I guess, not being as familiar with the Zodiac case, as everybody else, I mean, you kind of come into it with no bias. And like you said, absolutely. you know, it, it, I know that would help, you know, cause there's a lot of people that are, you know, one camp, you know, I think this guy did it, or I think, you know, he started way back when, and I just found it very interesting with the, the way that it kind of lined up with how, what was the guy's name that, that, that y'all had identified? We think it's a guy by the name of Gary Francis Post post yeah yeah and so and he was in the area along with was he 
and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere, was he like a travel, like he traveled some, is that how he was, or was he based out of San Francisco? So he primarily lived in the San Francisco Bay Area after he separated from the Air Force. Okay. Um, but he'd been, his last duty station was Vandenberg, which is, um, I would consider it Central California, but I guess it's kind of more Southern, but he was stationed there last, um, but he was also in the Riverside area around the 19, around 1966, and he was receiving treatment at a hospital um, near Riverside. So we can, we can place him in the locations of Sherry Joe Bates, which is a very controversial yes. victim, unfortunately, in this whole situation. We can talk about her too, but we can place him there at the time she was killed as well as place him up in the San Francisco Bay Area for the other Zodiac killing. So that that is, I mean, it's obviously circumstantial, but that that is just one piece of the pie that we have been able to nail down. So, and once he, you know, separated from the military, finished his treatment or whatever it was down near Riverside, he moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area and, and then to the High Sierras, but stayed in, in those two locations for the rest of his life. Now, was there any validity to... What was it? One, somebody in one of their findings had said that they thought he had used the Air Force wing walker boots. And that ties into his, obviously it ties into his Air Force background. But there was that early outlier case that she was killed outside of that library. Um, yeah. had they, were you able to tie him to that area as well? Yes. Yeah, that's the Sherry Joe Bates murder in Riverside. Okay. And yes, he, that, that's that's the year he was receiving treatment 15 minutes away from where she was killed. So yeah, I would, that would place him in the area. And yeah, so there's been those wing walker boot prints found at more than one Zodiac scene, but also Sherry, Sherry Joe Bates's scene size 10. And that is the size that Gary Post wore. And we have, I guess, I guess you call it confirmation, but from someone who knew him very, very well saying that those were the boots he wore most often and particularly when he was an outdoorsman, he was, you know, he was kind of a survivalist. He liked to go live off the land for days or weeks on end and stuff. And that was his favorite style or, you know, make and model a boot to wear. And he wore a size 10. So again, circumstantial, but it's just another thing that does not eliminate him, if that makes sense. Right, right. It just adds validity to his situation. Yeah. Um, when you get into the confirmed kills, like with Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, did he, I know, the, I know that since it was an active case that they kind of kept a lot of things close to the best. As a unit, were y'all able to kind of look at that and kind of tie him to that crime scene or was it more or less he's in the area? Uh, geographically, he, <clears throat> we can place them in the area. There, you know, with each, with each of his crime scenes, there are obviously some similarities and some differences. That's something that's kind of unique about him is his MO would change you know he didn't always use you know a, a nine millimeter for for example he he chose different methods of murder for different scenes and me personally i tend to think that it's because this was more of like a personal challenge to him than it was the traditional compulsion that most serial killers have where it's sexually based um with zodiac in general no matter who it is it doesn't appear that there was much of a sexual compulsion behind these crimes and um, it seemed more like this person was trying to prove to themselves that they could get away with it. And they kept upping the ante and making it more difficult for themselves. And I think that's part of the, the choosing of different weapons and different methodologies and, and going after 
you know, victims that are in a pair, because obviously it's way harder to control a pair of human beings than one. <laughs> right. And so I think, I think that was part of that personal challenge to him. Now, with the second attack with Darlene Farron and Mike Majot, was Mike Majot ever able to, and I know this is kind of tipping your hand and you can, yeah. you know, wait and we can save this for other things, but, you know, with, did he ever get a good look enough that he kind of, when showed photos, he, he was like, yeah, that might be him or. Um, from what I've heard, he helped, I believe he helped with some of those sketch, sketch artist drawings back in the day. Right. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss right now what any of the living victims. That's what I figured. Yeah, oh, unfortunately. I know, I know. You got to wait. You got to wait for Dale's book. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> tell, you know? We're not going to um, tell anybody. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Except your audience. That's right. Well, and that's um, what I kind of figured was that y'all with the case breakers, I know that y'all are trying to dot every I and cross every T. Yeah. And so I think that really with this being a case that no one really thought would ever be solved, being able to go and get them to kind of, to look back and kind of, Hey, does this look familiar? Does this sound familiar? You know, and then also the 911 opera, well, she wasn't really a 911 operator. She was a police dispatch. Now, is she still alive or had she passed? You know, that's a good, I actually don't know the answer to that, to be honest. I, I would have to Google her and see if she's still alive. Um, that's actually someone that hasn't, that name hasn't come up in our conversations or what I know about what's been done behind the scenes. So I actually don't have a good answer for you on that. What now, I can tell you is, is we're taking more solid strides to connect them to these scenes than just eyewitness accounts. Right, I'll, right. I'll let you ask your question and then we can get into that <laughs> whenever, you know, not trying to lead your conversation here. Well, and then I'm just trying to go through each way to confirm. So we get to Lake Berryessa with Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard. Were y'all ever able to, and, and you, again, you can tell me if you can't disclose it. I guess, what was the deal with the executioner's hood? Was it just, like you said, he's trying to up the ante and see what he can do? Or is this, was it tied to... You know, there's a lot being, I, and I'm kind of rambling and I apologize. There's been a lot tied to a lot of theories about he took his uh, identity after a dark comic or he took his symbol from the Zodiac watch. Do you think that played into it or do you think he was just trying to prove how smart he really was and so he could like one up the authorities? Well, there, okay, so there's a couple aspects there that I'll address. One is the Zodiac symbol. So Gary Post was a radar man in the Air Force. That was his, um, I forget what it's called in the Air Force and the Army, it's MOS. And he sat at a radar screen like, pretty much every day right. for his whole shift. So I personally believe that the Zodiac symbol is actually a radar screen. And part of the reason that I believe that is because if you look at how he signed with that symbol, his, the, the crosshairs, so to speak, don't end at the edge of the circle like right. a scope would, right? right? They extend past. Well, a, a radar screen, yes, is a circle and the lines technically, they physically end at the circumference of that circle, but in actual radar work, the, the lat and long go past the edge of that radar screen. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So I, I, think, I, think that, I think that's what the, where the, the idea for his symbol and his signature came from. And I think that's why those so-called crosshairs extend past the edge of the circle in his signature every time. Um, there's something else Zodiac related in his career, and that was when he was assigned to Greenland up on the distant early warning 
line at a radar station way up there. They, you know, they were shipped up in the late 50s by on a large cargo boat or whatever, which couldn't dock. So they would send out the small boats to, you know, get the, the sailors and the airmen and whoever off this ship and take them to shore. And those boats were called Zodiac boats. And they were able to operate under the radar. So they're not detectable by radar. And right. so I think that also might have played into, you know, he just liked that concept and therefore he adopted, you know, the Zodiac word, I guess, as you will, to be his, you know, quote unquote, signature or his moniker, I guess would be a better word for it. Let's see, what was your other question? Oh, about the executioner's food. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I haven't thought a lot about that aspect. I, I, I mean, we obviously know that he loved taunting authorities. Right. And he i do think he probably got a thrill out of seeing the terror and fear in people before their death and so obviously if you show up on a couple in a remote area that's completely not suspect you know has right. no idea that it's going to happen you show up looking like that it's probably going to invoke even more fear and maybe that was part of his you know part of his signature or whatever that he just but and again he may have just wanted to up the challenge, not only for himself or, but for authorities, like you said, he, he clearly found thrill in eluding authorities. So that, you know, that could, it could have something to do with that. I have a couple of questions. Did, did we always, was it always thought maybe that we were dealing with a, mil, a highly intelligent military guy? Uh, have, was that, was that a route that was taken in the in the beginning when they when they people started first receiving these letters and notes and things that when maybe we're dealing with a highly intelligent uh individual that was in the military and then the other question is did they go revisit any of those places that he was that he was stationed in while he was in the military and have any unsolved murders in those areas i do believe in the early days of the investigation that they, you know, they, they concluded that this person had to have some wits about them, right? I mean, they have to be somewhat intelligent in order to put together even a, a rudimentary cryptogram or a cipher. So I, I do think authorities knew they were dealing with somebody who, you know, it wasn't like a Richard Ramirez who's just, just <laughs> basically wild. out of control, right? This person was very calculated and I think authorities realize that. And I'm sure they had to consider the fact that it might've been a military veteran but in terms of their, you know, specific investigation suspect, I can't speak to it because I just haven't, had, I don't have the time to do that kind of research and sure. it, it doesn't benefit us really at this point. So um, I haven't done it, but I have to imagine that they considered that. Yeah. And then in terms of where he's been stationed, um, in terms of Greenland, no, there's no unsolved homicides up there that, that, that we know about. Um, his, his Vandenberg, of course, there's some in the California area. Yeah, Central mm -hmm. California area. So we are still working to try to piece together other crimes that he may have committed because I don't personally believe he only has seven victims. No. Um, I, I, I tend to believe that there's several more out there. And something that Tom Colbert realized is that in terms of known homicides attributed to Zodiac and then a couple others that we think might be it covers almost every year in the 1960s, except two. And if that's a pattern of his, then we believe he would have found more, you know, another victim in those other two years. But so far we haven't figured out 
um, which homicides those might possibly be. But there are it, crowdsourcing has been good from that aspect because there's out, people out doing research now and emailing us like, have you have you heard about this unsolved homicide? It seems to have some similar characteristics, and so that's been really helpful. Um, but obviously, until we get some more solid, like probably forensic or ballistics evidence, it's going to be hard to make those claims. Um, and then his other, his first duty station was Indiana. And I'd honestly have to go looking through some records to see if there's any unsolved homicides there. But me personally, I don't think that there will be. I think, so when he was stationed at Indiana, he was in a really horrific car wreck. He, it killed his passenger. Post was driving drunk and crashed the car, killed a passenger, fellow airman. He himself ended up in the hospital for months with a traumatic, a major traumatic brain injury, um, had brain Frontal surgery. <laughs> would, would he have frontal lobe damage from that yeah, accident? Absolutely. Which could have triggered yeah. his, his yeah. onset yeah. into thrill killing. Right. And that's something that I know about because I studied TBIs for my master's thesis. And so, yes, uh, when you have a traumatic brain injury, it often affects your frontal lobe, which is you know, the, the word is appropriate because it's towards the front of your brain, <laughs> but it's your decision-making area and your reasoning area of your brain, right? And so you've seen it with NFL players and even veterans, like they have major traumatic brain injuries. You know, we've seen, unfortunately, some just engage in behaviors that they probably would not have before. And so we can't prove it, but it does make me wonder, did that traumatic brain injury and then the, his commander inflicted additional trauma on him by putting his wrecked car out front of the post or the Air Force base for everybody to see as they drove in and out every day, embarrassed him, and then punished him by sending him up to Greenland. So it's possible that that, you know, combination of events changed his mindset in more it's ways than It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it totally could be. Set something off in him, you know. Now, I had heard that uh, he had a personal connection to uh, Paul Stein. Is, did y'all find mm -hmm. anything with that? Yeah. So, so something else to explain is the way that Dale Julin convinced me or himself first, but then me that he had the right guy is because he realized that all those taunting letters that had been, that had been sent to law enforcement and the media, they're actually anagrams. And an anagram is where you have to take all the letters in this message and then rearrange them to reveal the actual message the person wants to convey. Um, and what Dale realized is that in all 18 taunting letters in the last third, you can find the letters of Gary Francis Post. And I mean, this was just like a brilliant revelation on behalf of Dale, who's not into cryptology at all. You know, he, he's a reporter on the news, but he just realized this one night and was like, huh, I wonder if I take the letters of Gary's name out of this letter. And he started with the Halloween letter. What's left? You know, and so he did that. And then he was able to rearrange the rest of the letters into another message that made sense. And I'm not going to reveal the exact details of his decryption because that is totally his work and his story to tell. But what the reason I'm bringing this up is because in one of those decrypted letters, um, Gary Post or Zodiac, I should say, states that the murder of Donna Lass was business. I'm sorry, the murder of Donna Lass was for fun and the murder of Paul Stein was for business because Paul Stein had ripped him off and lied to him. And so <laughs> that was one of the, the points in this manuscript where I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah. how else can you explain these anagrams that fail? we believe has decrypted. 
So yes, and then Dale was able to trace back that Gary Post and Paul Stein had known each other and done some kind of business in the past. Or actually, I think this may have been over a drug a drug deal or something gone wrong or money. But yes, he was able to trace that they knew each other. Now at the time, did he, you know, th there's that whole mix up with the uh, dispatch when the, it's first reported. Did he fit that description that was sent by the party goers that were overlooking Paul Stein's murder? I know they stopped someone and said, hey, have you seen a uh, African-American male? And they were like, he was like, yeah, he went that way or, or something. Right. But I guess my thing is, if he would have met, you know, matched that description minus the African-American male, I mean, that's almost as good as, you know, the smoking gun there, for, at least for Paul Stein. Yeah. I forget the other details of that description. Of course, the main thing that we always remember is that they got the skin color wrong, which is right. what, uh, I guess, assisted him in getting away, although it does sound like he was quite close to authorities when they showed up. Um, I'd have to look back at the rest of what description was given to that dispatcher in order to tell you if it matched up. But I, you know, I would obviously probably say, yes, it did. It was at least close, but you know, eyewitness accounts are so they're, they're unreliable anyways, too. So like, right, right. I, I'm, I'm always a skeptic on eyewitness accounts and like even the, the sketches that are out now and stuff, I'm like, that's not what we're going on. You know, <laughs> like there's a lot more behind this that, that <laughs> at least it makes it make sense that he's the suspect. You get into some of the, the unconfirmed killings where, and this would have been, you know, early 63, where it was Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards. And I'm, you know, kind of loaded question, but I'm sure he was in the area with that too. Um, that was down Southern California area, right? Or yes. Southern half of Cal yeah, yeah. Because he was, I let's see, when did he get to Vandenberg? I want to say 61 time frame that he was at Vandenberg, and then for a couple more years at least, and then we know that he was receiving treatment at the hospital by Riverside in '66. Right, so, so 63, he's down he in right that there. general area. Yeah, yeah, he's in okay. that general area. And then, you know, kind of circling back to the the letters, when the couple kind of broke that first letter, he was able to use his anagram and go back and look at that one, and that one gave another message as well, didn't it? So Dale is has only worked on decoding the taunting letters that came in in English or le that used English letters. I got use the English alphabet. Let's put okay. it that way. Okay. Now I can speak to the 340 cipher, which is the one that was cracked about a year ago by right. the three guys. And I do, and I do think they have it right. But the thing is like, if you read it, what they cracked, it doesn't say much. Everybody's really disappointed because they're like, Oh, we thought his name would be in there and all this stuff. Well, it is, it's gotta be decoded one more time. I'm like, I urge people, please, to go to try and do it because, because I know Dale and I are so sick of trying to do anagrams. But in that 340 cipher, and it's difficult because it's got 340 characters, and that's a lot to try wow. to shift around, you know, into something else. Um, but you'll find the letters of Gary Francis Post in the last third of it. And then um, in the first third, there's a song lyric, and that's part of his MO in all his letters. There's usually either a song title from the era or a song lyric. He was very much into theater and music. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell what song lyric is up there, but, you know, people over time can figure it out. But so it, it is matching up 
to his MO on the anagrams of the other letters, but we haven't completely decoded it yet. But we would be happy if someone would please do that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll We're not on. trying to like take claim on that or anything. Like we're happy to use some crowdsourcing there to help out. So it's possible that the other ones that came in that were actually coded, you know, that weren't just using alphabet letters. Uh, it's possible that those need to be decoded again too. I tend to think on the very first one that the couple solved out of the newspaper that he didn't think it'd be as easy for someone to solve as it was. And so then I think he really, that's when he up the ante was Kept like, oh, okay, now, that was too easy for you guys. So now I'm, I'm really gonna try and get you. <laughs> and I guess that's another thing, you know, that that had been sent to Quantico for, you know, that was one of theirs for years is trying to get that cracked. And then, you know, those three guys, they had input all of that into that computer. Yeah. I guess kind of moving, we kind of touched on the, the victims. What did, were y'all able to find, you know, he, he wrote those letters about he was going to start picking off kids and he was going to put landmines. Was there any validity that he took steps to make that a reality or was that him just being braggadocious? It was him uh, bragging, but also, again, those are letters where you have to rearrange it all. And Dale has done that with about half, uh, half or maybe a little over half of these taunting letters so far. And uh, the, the one that had caught Dale's attention when he started looking at Zodiac was the one about the kids on the school bus, the threats towards them, because he specifically remembered Growing up in the Bay Area, uh, he was on the school bus during this time, and they had police escorts because of that taunting letter. Right. Um, but he was able to crack that anagram and reveal the actual message, which had nothing to do with um, blowing up school buses. It was just the wording, the letters, whatever, worked out for him to be able to write the initial code that way. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's those two postcards that he had sent there was one the I think they call it the pace postcard where it's got the holes on the the side is that an anagram as well I, mean, I guess you yeah. kind of it is okay yeah they all are yeah that's what um, I was about to ask I think he, that's the 13 punch card or the piece yeah. of the trees card I forget which one but the 13 yeah. punch card yeah yeah Dale has decoded those and I, and again I'm not going to give like the specific the decryption but um three of the taunting letters that dale decrypted led him to what we believe is an evidence site in the high sierras where donna Lass's body had initially been disposed of he you know gary post was very much into like i said he was a survivalist he was very good at navigation and when you decode these letters it gives you specific directions and um you know north south and lat long it's more complicated than that but dale in decoding those three was able to follow the directions up to the specific location in the high Sierras and lo and behold in front of him was this tree that had been described in the code as being a um, it's a tree trunk that starts as one and then it's it separates into two trunks and then twists back together so it's a very unique looking tree yeah. and that matched the description zodiac in the letter once it's decrypted, had said that he had hung the bones of Donna Lass in a bear cache 40 feet up that specific tree. So once Dale found the tree, he went and found a painter with a 40-foot ladder, and sure enough, 40 feet up the tree is hardware that's embedded in the tree. Dang. Now, obviously, the bear cache and her body is no longer there. 
Right. And, you know, he may have come and retrieved it. I still think that we can find her body. Like that is on my list of goals. (laughs) I think maybe some of the later letters may, once they're decoded, we'll have clues about where he actually buried her body or what he did with it. We're just not there yet. But to me, that was a turning point, a huge turning point in that manuscript, because I was like, you can't explain this any other way. I mean, the directions he specifically gave once you decode them takes you right there. And right. everything matches up with his measurements and everything else. So I, I, I don't, I could not explain that away. <laughs> There's just a couple more things, you know, and then we can, you can hit what we've missed. But the Halloween postcard, I know that at one time they had tried to remove the pumpkin and see if the pumpkin played a role in it. And then the envelope and then inside the card, there was something else. I mean, where I guess once he realizes those anagrams are going on, when he looks at those, you're not going to be able to look at something mundane, I guess, is my thing. You're always trying to find that hidden meaning. Mm-hmm. And then there's that through the trees card, which is that one's kind of odd. There was a history channel show, what, maybe seven or eight years ago that yeah, they thought they had found up there where that neighborhood was at uh, or a neighborhood was built in that area. So you know, it would make sense, like you said, that if he was such a great outdoorsman, he would he would know the terrain and how that terrain looked and then kind of match it up to that postcard. Were there any specifics off of those that that led him to something else? I mean, you don't have to disclose it, but were there like did that disclose things that that kind of further solidified that he's definitely on the right track? I think so. Um, there it, it is pretty amazing to me that one human being could create some of these cards and anagrams themselves but I do believe that he was this guy was capable of it um, one example I can think of where you have to look at more than just the letters even is like you look at the stamps on the accompanying envelopes and sometimes those hold a clue to what's in the anagram in that particular message so on one of the envelopes there's an Apollo is it Apollo 9 stamp I think it is yeah and that is- in the accompanying card once you crack the anagram, there is a quote from the Apollo 9 crew in that anagram. So there's like additional clues that if you can interpret them properly will help you decrypt all the haunting letters and figure out the correct message or the actual message that he was trying to convey. But it gets complicated, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, it, it hurts my head sometimes. I could just too. imagine, you know, just <laughs> trying to figure, you know, and then trying to set, not second guess yourself. Did I do it right? Did I not yeah. do it right? Um, th- I guess the other thing with him, you know, there had been theories put forth by a lot of people that felt like that he continued to write the press to stay in the press. But at the same time, you had Manson and that whole trial and the killings. Mm-hmm. Was he smarter? I guess was he, I guess, for lack of a better word, confident enough that he was okay just writing the letters and kind of taunting to keep himself alive or was, or keep his name in the press, or did he feel like, Hey, I've really gotten away with this and I'm kind of going back off. It could be a combination of both. I mean, it's hard to tell without being able to talk to him, which we can't, but um, I, I definitely think he got a thrill out of seeing his letters, you know, in the newspaper and articles about him and, I think he loved living this dual lifestyle, if you will, and having this very 
introverted, I guess you could call it public persona that his neighbors and um, few family members knew and a couple of friends or whatnot, but then getting, having this entire other life. I mean, I think, I think that was probably one of the biggest thrills to him. And so of course, every time his name is mentioned or he sends him a letter and gets the media all riled up, you know, it's, it's a reminder to him of this other life that he's getting away with. And yet he's probably sitting down and having a drink with his neighbor at night. And this guy obviously has, has no, no idea clue. who yeah. he's talking to. Yeah. Right. And I think he loves that. I really do. Do you think he kept trophies or do you think he was smart enough to kind of get rid of like the executioner's hood and, and the gun and the. Well, okay. So there's something interesting th that occurred on that recently. So we, we put out our initial press release October 6th and we didn't want to publicize all of our work this way, but we were at a dead end with law enforcement. And so we felt like we had tried everything else and uh, we didn't have much choice. So the best thing that's come out of that press release so far is several people from Gary Post's little town that he lived in in the High Sierras have come forward saying, oh, he was my neighbor or he painted my house because he had a house painting business. I knew him in some form or fashion. Well, there's one guy up there who Gary Post gave him over a thousand spent shell casings that he picked up after going into the woods and doing his target practice, which he loved to do. This neighbor of his, this guy, he did metalworking. He does metal art. And so Gary Post had given him all the shell casings saying, hey, can, you could melt them down, right? And like use them for your metal art. And the guy said, yeah, absolutely. You know, that would be great. So he got this huge container of shell casings and then never did anything with it, thankfully. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say, that would have been so awful if he had melted them down. But what a brilliant way for Gary Post to get rid of all those, you know? And um so this guy came to us after that press release and was like, so I have like 1200 shell casings from Gary Post and I have um, this, these containers of gunpowder and there's some other items that I can't divulge yet, but he's like, are you guys interested in that? I'm like, yes, please. Right, right. <laughs> so Tom called there and his wife, you know, on their own dime, drove up there and we talked extensively ahead of time about how to properly collect this because law enforcement won't do it. And we're not law enforcement, right? So right. I told them, you start the video from before you even walk up to this guy's door and keep it running until you get back in the car and you video everything of this turnover. So the guy signed an affidavit. There was a notary there that notarized it. It's all on video. Everybody's in gloves and masks and hairnets and got the parchment paper down to make to collect any trace evidence that might fall off these items and so on and so on. And so I think they did the absolute best they could to properly collect this evidence and create a chain of custody. And so what we've done is send, we've sent off some of those casings and other items to three different forensic labs. Again, this is at our own cost, law enforcement. We're paying out of pocket to have this testing done. But uh, We've got evidence at three different labs across the country now, and we're working on some DNA extraction and ballistics reports. And then our hope is that we can present our findings to law enforcement that we know has evidence from some of these unsolved Zodiac scenes and that they'll finally at least take this on a silver platter and do the comparison that we've been asking them to do. Right. Um, so that's the step we're at right now. And that's, I mean, I'm like, anxious very very anxious but very excited to see the outcome and see where this leads because you know if dna goes in codis i mean who knows we could get a match right there because right right 
And then, like yeah. I said, there, there, somebody may have an unsolved homicide, but they had a DNA profile from that same CODIS and never got a match. But aside from that, I think ballistics might be the next best thing, or might be the best thing, really, to link him to some of these crime scenes. So we just, it, but it's a waiting game right now while we wait on the line. And how, how ideal is it? When you say out of pocket, I mean, how do you guys raise your funds? I'm sorry to get a sidetrack, but that just, I, fi I found that curious. Our bank account. Oh, wow. So you're like literally out of your own pocket. Yeah, we do take donations. Um, we haven't really solicited. We haven't asked for any. We have, we have had people since October 6th that have donated small amounts, which is great. I don't care if it's a dollar or $10. It doesn't matter. It all helps. And we're just putting that all in the fund right now until we decide what's the best way to, I guess, distribute that money or, or utilize that money. None of us takes a salary. We don't get paid for any of this. Obviously, we'd like to pay ourselves back for the lab costs, which is about, we're at about $4,000 right now for those. Not to mention the time and, you know, Tom and his wife driving up from LA eight hours each way, having to get a hotel room, using FedEx, of course, overnight, you know, there's just all these costs kind of add up, but this is how much we believe in it. And this is how much we want answers. And the thing is, that even if we end up being wrong, it's still an answer and it's still forward progress in my opinion. It's like, okay, well, if we can rule this guy out, fine, then we can move on to other suspects. So that's, that's ultimately what we're after here is just answers in the case. Correct. I was, I was just going to say, what an ingenious way for him to keep a trophy, to take it, to have somebody melt the shell cases. Right? Nobody would ever know, you know, and he would have no. that. That seems so crazy. I know. And he even, I mean, there's even some weapons parts that he turned over this guy too, and we retrieved those as well. So again, um, we're working on acquiring the right ballistics expert who's willing to help us do this examination of all that stuff. So I was just going to say, do, do we think the 37 number is a fair number or is that just him bolstering his stats in the media? Well, here's the thing. I mean, that guy loves codes and navigation and all this stuff. And I told Dale, I was like, you know, the 37 could actually be Another. It was actually my husband that noticed it. He's like, well, when you write lat long or whatever it is as a radar man on the on the paper, if the number goes out to the side like that, I guess I'm not, this is not my area of expertise. And he's like, that could actually be like a navigational clue to something. And so, but we're, we're not, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like, who knows? Everything I think is right. a clue with this guy. That's what I was about to say. Cause you're, I mean, you're sitting there and you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, 37, and then you get to like out of the blue. I would have never thought, and, and I was looking while you were talking at that Halloween postcard. There is so much stuff on just that postcard. If yeah. you look at the postcard, what's inside, like you said, the stamp, and then on the inside of the envelope, I think he wrote, sorry, no cipher this time or something like that, but you don't know. I mean, you can't take him for his word because it's, it's, no. it's like the, the whole thing, it's a game to him. How many, how many times totally. can I can I thumb my nose at the authorities and, and dangle my true identity in there? And, you know, and, and going back to what Rob had talked about with the frontal lobe, is it one of those things where he was just, he was above average intelligence. And then after this, you know, some wires got crossed, but it made him able to really be able to do this. This is just my crazy yeah. brain working, but I mean, no, it's, I mean, because it's, I, I don't think an average person would think to take a postcard and use that with different anagrams 
kind of like, you know, he's wired different. And then, like you said, he turns around and has a painting business after, you know, all these years. So, I mean, that's crazy. It is. It and is. That's what fascinates me. Like, he's not, he's not a recluse like Eric Robert Rudolph, or he's not a recluse like uh, Kaczynski. He's, a, he's out in the open. He's, he's yeah. socializing with people. He's, he's got relationships with people. So, he, Absolutely. he's an anomaly. He's, he's something different. Yeah. I will say he was not, although he did get married to a woman, he did not seem to be into romantic relationships or dating at all. The more we find out about his life, the more it seems like that marriage was almost just like a cover for him to make him look a little more normal. Mm -hmm. So um, do, do you think he was asexual or just? It sounds like it because this woman that he married, I mean, she's been talked to and um, they never consummated their marriage. She said they never held hands. There's no photos of them, no kind Dang. of PDA. Obviously, he never had any kids of his own. So it, it almost sounds like he was. And I hate to say it, but it's also with a traumatic brain injury could have caused yeah. him to not, you know, right. just, just not, not be able to have sex. So, or, or just lose total interest. Mm -hmm. So, and in terms of uh, his planning for this, you know, he was stuck up in Greenland for a couple, at least two or three years. With, I mean, and from if you talk to airmen or anybody who's been stationed up there, which we have, I mean, they say it's just the absolute most boring place on earth and there's just nothing to do. And you're staring at this radar screen all day. So it wouldn't surprise me if he somehow hatched this idea and put a lot of it in place in his head, at least, you know, prior to leaving that duty station. And something else I think has to be considered is that some of these taunting letters I think he might have written before he actually committed the crimes. And that's that what was I was going to ask you. An, another level of challenge to himself to go find a victim or victims that fit what he had written in his letter. Because some of them are mailed like the next day. And I'm like, you can't, I don't, I mean, I don't care how smart you are. I don't know if you can come up with that just overnight. <laughs> no, that's what I was about to say, because he would have to be, you know, genius level at that point to be able to write the letter and then have already understand how to put the cipher in there. So you're right. I mean, yeah makes a lot more sense with the randomness of the couples too yes exactly and, and I think that's what you know everybody is looking for that the motive and stuff like that I think what terrorize and even like chill people to this day and, and the reason this case resonates through the years is like you said you know if he did write those letters it's just total randomness it's like the I think there was the Jacksonville Ripper back in the late 70s he you know it just whatever he was walking down the street or he happened to see peeped in this window and saw a lady I mean if you didn't close your blinds that night or you didn't pull your I think that's what really terrifies a lot of people is they want the boogeyman but they want the boogeyman to have predetermined yeah. parameters yeah exactly like Ted Bundy yeah you know, like his victims all most of them look very similar to one another he obviously had a type uh, it, I think it almost makes people feel slightly better when that happens rather than like you said, like completely random crimes, you know, a, a, a single person, a couple, you know, Caucasian, old, young, whatever, like didn't seem to matter to him. I mean, going back to that first, well, not the first killing, the second killing when he said that the, the car pulled in and kind of checked him out and then left and then came back. I mean, that, that right there. Yeah. I think that adds validity to, to your statement about he may have had that letter done. Yeah. And something else about the letters, we've been told by somebody else that knew him that he had his own, what's it called? A postal 
uh, postal machine? Uh, or the yeah, post basically where you can stamp, you know, the, the postal stamp. Right. Can, like, I guess companies nowadays still have that, but like he apparently owned one of them himself. And so he could dictate what numbers or what date went into that stamp. And on some of those envelopes, those numbers become really important. But yeah, it's just like another layer of his onion of a brain. It's like, my God. I was going to say, I mean, it's above it, mine at my level. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's way above mine because we didn't go over your pedigree. But I mean, you have, for you to be on this case breakers thing. Sorry, Rob, go ahead. I totally forgot. Oh, no. You have a question. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, do you think maybe he was, he was, the letters were like a, like a stopwatch for him or a timer. He's like, this is in the mail and I've got to do that. That's a challenge. It pushes Adds another challenge to, to, yep. to create it, to, to murder somebody. I could totally see that. I haven't really thought of it that way, but I, I, I would not put that past this guy at all. You might totally be right on that. It's just like, okay. A lot of sense. All right, yeah. man. I've set it all up for myself. Yeah, it's in the mail. Somebody's got to <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I know we're kind of all over the place, but that's, no, that's our good. podcast, but um, <laughs> we can't help it. Yeah, we can't. Going back to the Lake Berryessa, when he wrote that on that door, I guess now I'm thinking like, is that an anagram? Is there, it is. There a thing? It is. Oh God. Yeah. Dale, oh, Dale, God. Yeah. Dale decoded that one. Yeah. Dang. That's yeah, crazy. I mean, yeah. and once you, it's kind of like once the, one of those things, and we talked about it, on an episode one time about how you get predisposed with like if a red car cuts you off all of a sudden 10 minutes later all you see are red cars sure. like, I would hate to be Dale now I'm looking at everything trying to be like <laughs> now I've got to look at this is this is this legit on face value do I have to rearrange it man my yeah. head I, I don't know if I could have done I mean hats off to him because I mean that would drive me crazy yeah it, it has I I asked him I talked to him a couple of weeks about ago about an idea I was like hey Dale what if we get on and make a YouTube video explaining your process like we don't have to reveal the answers you came up with to the other letters but it's easy enough to explain your process and try to crowdsource the solving of the 340 cipher because it's so massive you know and I said or are you wanting to to do that yourself and he was just like if I never see another anagram again in my life, <laughs> it will be too soon. So, <laughs> but yeah, he is over it. <laughs> but, but of course we want to solve all of them because right. uh, there's going to be way more clues in these other ones that he hasn't, hasn't got to yet. And, and I still believe one may hold the location of Donna Lass's body. And we would really like to find her and at least, you know, bring her home and get some resolution in that case. So we're going to keep working towards that. And like I said, I encourage listeners to, to do their own work on it and just, you know, take the letters of Gary Francis Post out of um, each one and then, and then work on rearranging the rest. But where Dale really became brilliant is he knows the MO, assuming that he's right, and I think he is, but he knows the MO of the person who did all these anagrams. It's like, it's like the song title thing, right? You would never think to look for that, but it's in every there's a song title or, or or lyric in every one that Dale has decoded so that's just part of the pattern that you have to learn over time and how the guy speaks and then you have to remember like okay so he when he spells the word paradise he misspells it right he uses a c instead of an s well that's because he needs the c for francis his middle name so you have to keep that in mind as well, is that when you decode it, not everything may be spelled absolutely perfect. 
Um, in fact, in one of the, the letters, instead of he, the word icy is there, and instead of it being icy, it's I-C-E-E. -E. But that's how, I mean, it's just what he had to do in order to make to it work, to, you know, to, to get it work, to work. Yeah, it's not 100% like this perfectly, beautifully written paragraph. <laughs> So you really have to get inside his head and know know his interests and his likes, and then and then start learning about the patterns that he used in all of these too. And that's that just adds another layer to how, and I hope you know for y'all's sake that this this comes true. But that just adds another layer to how wrong most everybody was when they were you know because they were thinking he's you know middle intelligence. He's misspelling these words. It's showing a lack of intelligence. So, but I mean, yeah. he's showing a, a huge step of intelligence by purposely misspelling so that his anagram works. Yeah. It's just, God, that's crazy. But, Indeed. Um, and going I mean, back to some of those details, by the way, there's, so there's a dripping pen card. And if you look real close, I think next to the pen, there it's a film reel, like with yeah. the little squares of a film reel. And Dale strongly believes that that is a huge clue. He, he actually believes that if someone would take a black light to the original of that, that there would actually be an invisible message on there. And that, because in some of his decoded anagrams, there was clues about needing an ultraviolet light and stuff to, un, to unveil a whole dripping pen card clue or something like that. So um, he thinks that that little film reel is, is a clue about that. And also we know that he loved film and theater and all that so it's just another clue to his identity as well what music was he listening to like can you tell us any of the like lyrics or what what was what was the what was he um I remember like something from Bye Bye Birdie but I think that's a musical right yeah yep. I'd have to go back and look at the manuscript I can't remember the other one <laughs> so if it was great if it was the Grateful Dead I mean we would have I mean we could right now we could I'll give up <laughs> It's earlier than that because he was he was using stuff from the fifties and sixties. I guess the Grateful Dead did come around then, but um, he was he was more into like the theater type songs. And Again, kind of flaunting his like intelligence. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. Absolutely. I mean, this has been such a like. I got I jumped down this rabbit hole. I started teaching about an hour one way from my house, and so I started listening to podcasting. You know, they did the people that did the Atlanta child murders first started with the Zodiac and they, they were mm -hmm. 30 or 40 minutes. And so I was, I mean, eyeball deep. I was listening to all of it, but now I'm kind of like, man, all of those preconceived thoughts that I came up with a couple of years ago have just been just thrown out the window. It, yeah. It was the same so, for me too. Uh, this is a really unique case because you almost needed to work it backwards like Dale did, which isn't how you investigate a homicide. You know, you start with the right. crime scene and all that stuff and see where the evidence leads you. But Really, in this case, you had to do it backwards, and you couldn't figure this out without knowing Gary's name because that's the cipher key to each anagram. And I'm really tired of seeing this online, but like, yes, you can find the letters of anybody's name in most of these messages, right? You can you can find Jen Buchholz in there. Okay, fine, but that doesn't leave you with the right combination of letters to get the message he's trying to convey. Like, it's not about just being able to find the letters of his name. It's what you do with the rest that are left over that's important and I think for some reason there's a lot of people missing that fact <laughs> right I think that's uh, and I think that's a huge key for for listeners to and, and just the general public to keep in mind is 
that he did his due diligence by taking his name out and then rearranging and it came yeah. up with these specific things yeah and then you know and another thing is for any I guess the naysayers out there you know pick a name that your favorite you know suspect yeah. and if you pull him out and you come up with an anagram then you know that's yeah, please send it to us yeah <laughs> yeah because maybe it's right I mean we're not it's not a competition here like we're just trying to get answers at this point and get this over with because we want to move on to other cases, to be honest. I mean, every right. victim deserves justice, and we want Zodiac victims to have justice and answers. But the, right. most of us are working on other cases that we're knee-deep in and, and would like to just get some resolution here. But, um, yeah, and by the way, in some of the letters, punctuation is very important, too. So if there's a period or an apostrophe, don't throw that away. Don't throw it away. You need to use it. Man. It'll be used. Yeah. So that's and, then, on you, buddy. and there will be nothing left over. That's the other thing. So you can take my name out of the letter and probably rearrange it into something, but you'll probably have some leftover letters. That's not correct. Like the way Dale has decoded them, it uses every single letter. So that's just another, it's another reason why I think he's correct because there's no other way to turn those into a, a usable message. Right. And wasn't um, the first cipher there was that jumbled up at the bottom when they deciphered, when they broke that code, they had that, was it 16 or 13 letters? I think it's a 13. I have a theory on that. Go for it. Cause in my mind, like I actually, I worked on that for a while and then I got my head hurt. So I put it aside. But so if you look at the letters of Gary Francis post, there's 13 letters used in his full name three of them are used twice so it was like is that the connection to those 13 symbols and i was trying to figure it out but then i got really sidetracked because one of the symbols is the, his little zodiac signature and i was like well if i take that out as his signature then i'm left with 12 symbols and you can see where i went down the rabbit hole and then yeah. we got a headache so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that that was my train of thought on that one but i don't know what the solution is at this point so I would love if somebody would help us with that too. I'm on it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, including the documentary, please. Because <laughs> that is coming up. Like we did after that press release, we, we got inquiries from, I think it was 13 or 14 different networks um, wanting to do, wanting to sign for a documentary. That is way out of my wheelhouse. I don't control any of that. That's Tom, Tom Colbert's but we're on a short timeline now because we're once he signs that contract, which is probably sometime next week, then we're under a media blackout and I can't talk about it anymore. So that's why I was really glad that you guys were available today to discuss this. Yeah, guys, do y'all have anything? I was just going to touch on, you know, just the case breakers in, in general. The last thing I wanted to ask, I just kind of wanted to circle back around to uh, Paul Stein. Uh-huh. So there was there was a somebody said there was an African American african-american male in the area that, well i that, think the that, dispatcher misinterpreted that okay i was just curious because that's the same around the same it's the same year uh as the manson murders and so they were using that uh to try to start a, like a race war uh saying it was uh african-americans that went in and killed the labiancas and and, and sharon tate and all that stuff mm -hmm. i didn't know if that was kind of like hey i'm going to throw this in there to, to stir the pot so, you know, I wouldn't put it past them, actually. <laughs> but my understanding is that the eyewitness who called st 
stated they saw a Caucasian male, if I'm correct, but somehow through the game of telephone, it turned into an African-American guy. I gotcha. don't know how that happened, but I mean, even, even law enforcement has said Paul Stein is connected to Zodiac because as you know, he cut and a piece shirt. of Paul Stein's bloody shirt and mailed it in. So we know that mm -hmm. he was at that, at that mm -hmm. crime scene. So gotcha. um, it's, it has been confirmed to be one of his victims. It's just a matter of confirming the perpetrator. Right. Touching on the, and we kind of did this backwards, but how did you get involved with case breakers? Was it through this case or? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was through the Zodiac case. And then, you know, once Tom and I got to know each other and he learned about my background and me working on other unsolved homicides, you know, he off, offered me up to be a member of the team. So I wasn't going to turn that down. No, so no, that's awesome. It's really cool. Like I've made some really awesome connections with other former investigators. I mean, not everybody's former, some are still current in law enforcement, but we have, you know, retired FBI agents on our team. You know, we have, a, um, a, I mean, a world renowned uh, medical examiner, forensic pathologist on our team. Like we have some incredible resources and combined it's hundreds, if not thousands of years of experience between everybody. So it's And I think great. that's what makes y'all so, you know, unique is there's kind of that that laser focus you want to find and solve murders and kind of check your egos at the door and kind of yeah let each person in their own you know specific field run with that avenue of the investigation and come back and discuss it and I think that's great and without divulging too much what can you say about the other cases that y'all have kind of looked at are there just some small time cases or are they more high profile or I mean, as a whole, Case Breakers is looking, you probably saw the website, like Hoff is up there and the Atlanta Child Murders. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm privy to some of what's going on with those, but that's not my personal focus. Like I focus on more, um, you know, low, pro low profile, less known murders. And so you guys know about the Rebecca Gould murder. And I worked on that with George Jared for a couple of years. And then finally, a year ago, there was an arrest, um, but we're waiting on trial for that guy. And and so we had a bunch of downtime. So I was like, hey, George, you know, we did pretty good on the last one. You want to team up again and, and work on another one? And he said, hell yeah. So um, we presented at CrimeCon this year on Rebecca's case. And then while we were there, we met a woman named Liz, who's the sister of a murder victim out of Lubbock, Texas. And um, we talked with her extensively. And it was just me and George kind of looked at each other like, this is the next one. I don't know what it was. It was like, this is the next one we're going to work. And so we've been working that one since about July. And I actually, the university I work for, AMU, rebranded one of their podcast channels for us. That's awesome. And turned it into a true crime investigative podcast. And so we're in the middle of the season of, it's called Break the Case. And it's on most podcast platforms. And episode five will be out next week. So it tells you how far we are into the podcast season. But um, I think we've made a ton of good headway on that case. And my my thing is I work one case at a time like I can't like it's been very difficult to juggle Zodiac <laughs> with trying to focus on Debbie's case I don't mind doing it but you know you're I like to just stay focused on one case at a time so I don't right, get confused right. and all that and so we're kind of we're working towards a vision of creating more teams like me and George around the country like two or three person teams of people who work really well together but have different skill sets that complement each other like I'm former army and, and into forensics and stuff and he's an investigative journalist but he's covered homicides for 20 years and he's a true crime author and stuff so 
we have different skill sets, but that go together well. Yeah. So we're trying to establish more volunteer teams around the country of people that want to do that, just focus on one case at a time, you know, but it's a, it's a process because you have to vet everybody that wants to volunteer and then right. assess, yeah. assess their willingness. You know, I mean, there's some weeks I work 40 hours on Debbie's case and we don't get paid anything for it. I don't get paid to podcast or write or any of that. So, um, you know, we have to find people who they don't necessarily need to put in that many hours, but like who are going to stick with it in the long run and not get bored. Correct, but, correct. So if you guys, you know, you guys or anybody, you know, is interested, like, please just go to the website and send us an email and we'll, we'll get on the phone with you and chat. And it'd be, you know, it'd be great to have other people out there with investigative skills or like you podcasting connections, whatever that can be useful. So that's the, that's the direction we're trying to head. And that's great because I mean, really, this podcast area that that's one thing that you know coach and i've talked about and then we've also talked about it with rob is this is one of the the best communities for sharing information and oh things gosh, like that yeah. and mm -hmm. so you know and then just like you said you know i think the same lady that kind of turned you on to rebecca's case kind of contacted us too and and she's been great she's you know she really you know entrusted us to do a good job with that case and and I feel like, you know, Rebecca's case needed a lot more than we could, we too could give. It was, I mean, for it to be a, uh, to have a break, you know, and, and arrest that guy. And I would love to have you back on and, and us go through that whole case again. Sure. I know that's, yeah. that's another probably hour of just dissecting everything <laughs> yeah. that, that that lovely individual has done. But so other, I guess the big question now is, for our listeners and, and anybody really, how can I, we help the case breakers? How can we donate? Is there a, is there a donate button? Is there, you know, a, a source, you know, GoFundMe page or. Um, so if you go to the website, it's the casebreakers.org. Um, you can find everything there. There is a donate button, but you can also find our YouTube channel. And I would encourage listeners to subscribe to that channel because we're putting together content currently that's going to go up there. I have a few videos up there actually relevant to Rebecca's case. And I think one for Debbie's, um, but George and I recorded on Saturday, a video going over how he got involved in Rebecca's case. And then this Saturday we're recording a second half of that, of how he and I came together. And we're hoping that serves as some inspiration for, you know, people that want to help us and kind of replicate our process, I guess, and help, help us solve some of these murders in our country. Right. Um, so there'll be more and more content coming up on the YouTube channel. If they want to subscribe to that. And then Casebreakers is on Twitter and Facebook. You know, it's on all the social media if you want to follow us there. And then um, I have my own YouTube channel. My handle is uh, Jen Buchholz, PI. And it's the same as my Twitter handle. And some of our content overlaps, but I also have obviously some other individual stuff too. People are interested in that. And I mean, and, you, and then you can find the Casebreakers email link on the website too. So if you have any questions or you just want to reach out or, you know, be one of these support personnel that we can call on once in a while, like if we need a, you know, a medical expert to look at an autopsy report or, you know, you don't have to like be involved all the time, but we like having people, volunteers that we can call on on occasion for specific assistance like that. So if anybody has a skill like that, that they want to offer up, please, you know, reach out again, like you guys just spreading the word on your podcast is fantastic. So we're yeah. headed in a good direction. I think I feel good about it. 
Well, I'm glad. And, 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 you know, anytime we can help, you know, bring light to some of these smaller yeah. cases, we, we really do appreciate Absolutely. You know, trying to just get people talking about it. And I think that's, you know, coach and I've talked about on a couple of our episodes, you know, the latest one we did was the Springfield three. And oh, I, yeah. like, I think yeah. the Springfield three needs a fresh set of eyes, kind of like, you know, Rebecca's case got a fresh detective in there and, you know, and I listened to your, not to take away from an upcoming interview with you, but I listened to your uh, Diamond State murder board. Episode oh, yeah. Where mm-hmm. they found the, the the business card from the detective and I got chills and I, I oh, told Rob yeah. about it. I cried. Yeah, I mean, I, I teared up and I was like, you know, for him, and I told my wife, we were sitting here one evening and I said, for him to to do that and know that it probably would never be seen. I mean, that just speaks volumes to what kind of person yeah. he is. Exactly. And he works a couple hours from that cemetery. So, I mean, he went way out of his way to go deliver that. Like, yeah, that literally made me cry when we found that on her headstone. I mean, that's, that was, yeah, that's yeah. phenomenal. And I mean, it, it is for him to, well, you know, for him to be on it in so little time and then to have a huge yeah. break like that. I mean, that's yeah. what some of these cases need and kind of like, you know, like you said, we, you just need some, some people to get some fresh eyes on stuff and, and, yeah. and, ask some questions, you know, that may not have been asked. So, right. Yeah. We actually got, after the press release, we got three emails about the Springfield three case. And, um, I had heard, I'd heard the Springfield three podcast before that, but I saw those emails and it did pique my interest because it was from three, obviously three separate people who I don't think know each other. And I was like, well, maybe we don't normally do missing persons, but maybe, we could find some volunteers to team up in that area and, and try to do something and like maybe team up with you guys since you know about it now. And I don't know, we can just, yeah, anytime, anytime we can help. I mean, we, we definitely, you know, are, are willing to do whatever we can to get, to get some ideas out there and do follow-ups with, you know, even just some new leads, you know, Mm -hmm. little short episodes like that, but absolutely. I just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day and, and speaking. Oh, for sure. With us. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, I can't, I can't thank you enough. The generosity you showed when, when we were researching uh, Rebecca's case, you know, it, it showed me that you really were, you just wanted answers. And I think that, yes. that, that spoke volumes. So again, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Anytime. And if you end up with follow-up questions, please reach out again. And I'm happy to to come back on or at least give you the information that, you know, to answer, to try to answer your question and present. So be around, but yeah, let's do this again sometime. Yeah. I would love to. (laughs) I would love to pick your brain on the child murders in Atlanta. Oh God. Yeah. We can. Yeah. 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 Off off an episode. We look, we just like huddle around because I've got a ton. Yeah. 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 Okay. I would love to hear it. Absolutely. Cause like you see, it's on our website. So yeah. Any information about that, we'd love to hear. Yeah, well, Coach, you got anything? You know I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. Hopefully we'll chat soon. Happy holidays. Have a great day. Thanks. Well, that concludes our episode with Jennifer Bucoltz. Hopefully you found it as informative as the coach Rob and I did. Again, we cannot thank her enough for taking the time out of her busy day to speak with us. If you would like to help the Case Breakers, please visit their website, click on that donate button, and show some love. Well, ladies and gentlemen, deuces.